What's up, everybody? Thanks again for tuning back into the Car Tech Garage, where Max and I keep cars interesting every week for you guys. Yeah, we try to. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I don't know if we're interesting, but the stuff we talk about hopefully is. Absolutely is. I mean, all this great history, all these these great moments in time and, and finding out companies that have been made their way to today and how they got there. You know, there, there's all kinds of stuff. Endless, endless, endless history when it comes to the automotive <laughs> industry. Anyway, we're going to fill up a little bit more of your time here. Uh, we're going to talk September 26th through October 2nd. So let's go ahead and kick it off. September 26, 1993, just 28 years ago, Mr. Elaine Prost became the second man after the legendary Fangio to win four world championships. Um, and he, he didn't win this particular race. He actually got second place at the, four, at the Portuguese Grand Prix, which was enough uh, to get him enough points to secure the title. Now, ironically... Wow. The race winner was, in fact, Michael Schumacher, the man who went on to take five and equal Fangio. Um, Jeez. And then, you know, obviously going after that, ended up having second, <laughs> seven world championships. And um, it's just, it's kind of funny. Now, Prost drove uh, his typically safe race. I mean, he, he was known as the doctor for a long time. That was kind of his nickname in the Formula One realm. Because he was just, what, calculated? Very much so. I mean, surgical is an approach to his driving. I mean, very, very much so. I think it's an accurate term, too. <laughs> Hence the name, <laughs> The Doctor. Um, but yeah, so really, 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 really cool. Let's go ahead up here. September 27th, 1908. I'll go ahead and move along here real quick. 113 years ago, the very first factory-built Ford Model T was completed. Now, this was just one more step in Ford's affordable revolution. The Model T, affectionately named Tin Lizzie. Wow, that's, that's yeah. an now, interesting name. Well, it, you've seen the movie Cars. Mm -hmm. Next time you watch that, that little old lady, lady that's the Model T, yeah. her name's Lizzie. Uh, uh, okay, now it's making sense. Yes, All indeed. these childhood you know, uh -huh. <laughs> shows now are making sense. Yep, indeed. So the Model T revolutionized the automotive industry, as many of us know, by providing an affordable, reliable car for the average person. Mm -hmm. You know, Ford was able to keep the price down by retaining control of all the raw materials, um, completely revolutionized mass production methods. When it came out, it only cost $850, which, again, a fair amount of money back then, but for a car... That was amazing. You know, yeah. prior to that, cars could only be had by the rich and famous. Yeah, that was a reasonable, you know, affordable vehicle. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So he started the actual engineering project in 1903, and, and Henry Ford and his engineers struggled for years to produce something that was really reliable and that could be produced inexpensively for the mass market. But it wasn't until the 20th attempt at the engineering uh, design. So they basically built 20 cars and it took them until the 20th to really get it right to where they could make it mar marketable. And that's why the Model T is named the Model T because it's the 20th letter of the alphabet. So they failed basically 19 times to finally make the, Correct. the good one. Just like Thomas Edison said that he invented, you know, 10,000 light bulbs or versions of the light bulb before he actually got the incandescent the light bulb one. to work. That's what it takes sometimes. It is. It is just stick-to-itiveness and determination. Mm -hmm. You can't quit. And you get the Model T out of it. <laughs> well, hopefully something now. <laughs> Nowadays, something a little bit better than the Model T. But <laughs> have you ever seen, you know, one thing I've always been impressed about the Model T was just its rugged capability. Not a lot of people realize this, but, you know, it, it was, it, so you have to kind of take into account the times. There weren't roads everywhere back then. Oftentimes these things were driven around in the fields and in the mud and you'd be surprised at the off-roading capability of a Model T. I mean, it had a pretty significant amount of ground clearance. You know, a torquey little engine, huge wheels, and 
those darn things could go just about anywhere. It blows my mind, you know, like looking at them and seeing pictures of them versus the vehicles that we have nowadays, you take it off road at all, it's going to blow to pieces, you know, for your average, just run of the mill vehicle that's going down the road. Exactly. Unless you have a truck or something that's off road capable, like you, you just can't do that anymore. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. September 28th, 1959, Otto Wilhelm Rudolf Caracola. He died. <laughs> he was 58 morbid. years old. Now, he won the European Drivers' Championship, the pre-1950 equivalent of the Formula One World Championship at the time and unsurpassed three separate times. That's it's impressive. Incredible. Yeah, very, very skilled driver. Now, he was one of those people in history who wasn't just talented, but he got to drive some of the coolest cars the world may ever see. So he started racing with Mercedes, doing hill climbs in 1930 and 31. Mercedes was, of course, at the forefront of vehicle technology. Mercedes, Auto Union, um, Horch, and a lot of those other people that were forming the Auto Union eventually um, ended up being very, very prominent. Mercedes and Auto Union, after they were formed, were essentially the two powerhouses mm. in Germany for automobile manufacturing and you know, essentially technological advancement. So he started racing with Mercedes in 30 and 31. He won the European championship twice in a row for Mercedes, moved to Alfa Romeo in 32, won again, and then moved to a privateer team for 1934, uh, where he actually raced a car with his teammate, Louis Chiron, who they made, yeah. who ended up <laughs> racing for Bugatti. Familiar. They named a Bugatti after the guy. Um, but he ended up having an accident. He was forced to retire from that race. And he kind of put a pause on his racing antics for uh, about a year until the following year. He ended up being hired on with a reformed Mercedes team. And with Mercedes, he was able to win three driver's championships. You know, and most of the time, he, he, you know, he was driving um, cars like the W125 and its different iterations. And the final iteration of the W125, uh, you know, Grand Prix car, it was a 650 horsepower straight eight. Which is insane. Yeah, a supercharged straight eight, 650 horsepower. And that was the car that, you know, he drove around on essentially wagon wheels with very rudimentary suspension. <laughs> I mean, you know, hardly any brakes, you know, really scary stuff to think that you could put that much horsepower in something back then. And you didn't have anywhere near the handling chassis and braking upgrades that you do nowadays. You know, it's like putting a thousand horsepower in a Honda Civic or a Miata or something like <laughs> it, it really, it's, it's the same equivalent of it, if not worse, in fact, um, <laughs> But it, he even drove more powerful cars like the 125 record wagon. Mm -hmm. And if you guys remember that, it was a, a specifically developed top speed record breaking car. It achieved 268 miles per hour on a closed roadway in 1938. 1938? 1938. Wow. That's still impressive years and years later in today's standards. Yeah. Ni 1938, where 100 miles an hour was a, a big deal. Now, the record wagon was based off of the open-wheeled 125 Grand Prix mm -hmm. car, but it had an aerodynamic enclosed body shell. They ripped out that puny little supercharged V8 and put a twin supercharged V12. Jeez. And power <laughs> estimates are, they've been as high as the 850 horsepower range. In 1938, I'll say it again, 850 horsepower in 1938 from a five and a half liter twin supercharged V12. That's astonishing. That's <laughs> astonishing. It astonishing. just makes me smile. <laughs> anyway, since the 268 miles an hour run was done on a closed public roadway, that particular speed record would not be broken until 2017. That's insane. It's insane. There's no words for it. Now, partially really because nobody had thought or thought to be that dumb. They're like, well, let's just yeah. go do it on salt flats. But, you know, that was a car that could be driven on a street. And the 
car to break that record went 276, and that was a Koenigsegg Agera RS. And mind you, the sophistication and, and just the amount of engineering that went into the Agera. Just to get <laughs> an extra 10 miles an hour, not even 10 miles an hour, eight miles an hour. And years and years later. <laughs> so yeah, Rudolph got to drive some really cool that's, that's, cars. It puts it a lot of perspective. Of, that's like riding a horse just on steroids and just ready to go. I mean, it just goes. When you were used to a rocking horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like there's no comparison for what that could possibly feel like. It was Especially just, in 1938, you know, and you, you go back and you, you know, hop back in your, your standard car. It would, go 20 miles an hour down the road. <laughs> well, a little bit faster in 838, but still, you know, I mean, it, it's just crazy to think about. And I know that, you know, the technological advancement was there. But those cars were still very rudimentary by today's standards, as you would imagine. Mm -hmm. But they were ingenious how they developed that kind of stuff. And you even see that, you know, trickling to Mercedes um, cars of the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. A lot of that technology that had been developed in that, like I was even looking at at an old 70s uh, Mercedes SL and there was a, a fuel cooler that was built in. Like, and then there, even, really? a, yeah, it was even, there was a, another one, a 90, they kept it all the way up until 90 and they ran it. Uh, they ended up updating it. But on, for instance, we have a 1990, uh, Mercedes SL 500 that comes in. Mm-hmm. It uses the air conditioning system to pocket up in, in the, in the cold line and it runs fuel through that, like in a separate, in a separate chamber within the same line. To keep the fuel cooler. Cool. Because what, it's carbureted, correct? Or No, no, it's still fuel injected, but it has this weird um, vacuum-operated throttle system. Oh, okay, yeah, I and know it what has, you're talking about. It has a fuel cooler that's built into the air conditioning system. It's like, what? That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. That's almost crazy. <laughs> yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want it to break and we have to fix it, but it's super cool when it's yeah. working. <laughs> I mean, really, just ingenuity. Just something um, you would never think about, you know. That's what Mercedes always goes and overcomplicates they things. They really have. I mean, you know, and that's a testament to why they world won so many world titles, especially mm-hmm. as of late. I mean, they have an incredible engineering force. I mean, it, it's it's unbelievable. And working on them, I can just tell. You know, it's something yeah. that would take me ten minutes on any other vehicle is yeah. two to three hours. <laughs> now, not to say not to say that using all of that, um, using all those resources and all of that intellect for motorsports is a waste because it's not. But I feel like they could solve some really big problems if they like shifted their perspective or, or shifted their aim. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like world hunger. I'll oh, just put the Mercedes F one team on. They'll fix it. <laughs> they no problem. <laughs> Global warming. Oh, just leave it to Toto. He'll get it. <laughs> he can, he can win anything. Yeah, exactly. All right. So September 29th, 1913, 108 years ago, um, Rudolph diesel at 55 years old, mysteriously disappeared from a steamboat while traveling from Belgium to England. Now, Rudolf Diesel invented the diesel engine. Mm -hmm. Um, He ended up, you know, mysteriously disappearing, right? Nobody knew where he was. Over a week later, they found a body floating on the water and proved it to be him. So a great deal of mystery surrounds his death. You know, a lot of people say that he committed suicide. It was obvious. All of his clothes and everything were neatly folded in his room. His window was closed and locked. It was a very, very strange circumstance. He even was attending dinner, speaking with some people on the boat, retired to his cabin, never seen again. Now, here's the weird part, because he was on his way to England 
to strike a deal with the English parliament to install and manufacture his engines in England and, you know, use them for factory work essentially. So many people believe that diesel was murdered. I mean, it, it, it's not impossible, right? Yeah, it's a big deal. And always the, the joke that I made that before the diesel was even made, you already had the term coined of a runaway diesel. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, it's a morbid joke to make, but that's always what cracks me up about oh it is, gosh. you know, you hear the term runaway diesel. And then Rudolph know, Diesel himself abandoned, he, yep, abandoned ship. Ran away. So. Well, he didn't run. He swam away, maybe. Oh, yeah. Or he got killed and dumped in, into the, the ocean. For all purposes, he ran away. But that's the thing. I mean, was, <laughs> was he killed to prevent the sale of patents to Britain? Was he murdered by someone from one of the foreign oil trusts that didn't want his newly designed diesel engine that could run on just about anything combustible yeah. to be installed in factories all around the world and cost them untold amounts of dollars? See, now it sounds like we're an automotive murder podcast. <laughs> A whole new niche. <laughs> I mean, that might, you know, we could talk about Rudolph Diesel. We could talk about Mickey sure, Thompson. Sure. You know, that ooh, might be kind of interesting. It would be. Hey, let us know. Yeah. If you guys want us to do a whole murder podcast <laughs> on well, just automotive related. Well, we'll do some murders. segments of it. We'll just do, you know, like a couple of series on it. Maybe I can, I can just compile practice. some stuff. Let yeah. us know. Let us know in the comments if you guys want to hear that. So absolutely. That we'll move ahead here. <laughs> September 30th, 1955, 66 years ago at 545 PM, a 24 year old actor named James Dean was killed in California when his Porsche that he was driving hit a Ford Tudor sedan at an intersection. Now, the driver of the other car ended up being dazed, but mostly uninjured because it was like three times the size of, of this Porsche 550. Um, but it was a, a very sad day for many people because a lot of people really you know, followed into James Dean. He was a very prominent actor of the time, and he was a huge motorsports fanatic, absolutely obsessed with Porsche. And um, it's it's kind of an interesting story because a lot of people have exclaimed that the Porsche that he was driving was inherently evil, and certainly after his death. So, so here's the weird part: inherently evil, dude. I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So, so here here's the story, right? Um, him and his buddies. He's he's riding with his with his mechanic. His mechanic's name is is Rolf uh, Wertherick, who who was um, a German mechanic that had come over and was staying in the states and helping Dean work on his car. Now, it was brand new, right? Brand new Porsche, making sure everything was in, in order. They took it out for a drive with a couple of their buddies, and just a few hours earlier, he had actually gotten pulled over for speeding and been issued a speeding ticket. And everybody claimed speed wasn't the factor, but of course, he was driving, you know. Excessive. Excessive speed. I mean, obviously. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, exactly. He, he loved cars. And obviously, if you're in a brand new Porsche 550 Spider convertible, you're going to have some see fun. See what it's got. Yeah, you're going to see what it's got. Yeah. So he was he was actually on his way to go enter the car in a race about 90 miles south of San Francisco when it was dusk and this Ford Tudor sedan couldn't see him, pulled out, and he T-boned him. The car was mangled. Um, Dean suffered multiple fatal injuries and died at the scene. His mechanic was thrown from the vehicle, badly injured, but he ended up being, he ended up surviving. And the crazy part is after this crash, nobody knows where the car is, by the way, the car had been parted up and and sold and and bought in many different pieces. But it it was weird because after the accident, they were trying to load the car up on the tow truck Mm -hmm. and it ended up rolling off the back of the truck and crushed the legs of a different mechanic that was standing nearby. 
Later, a used car dealer stripped the parts, sold the parts all over the country, and strange incidents kind of multiplied. The car's engine and transmission were all transplanted into cars that subsequently were involved in deadly crashes. What? A truck carrying the chassis um, off to a highway safety exhibition skidded off the road, killing its driver, and the remains of the car vanished from the scene of that accident and haven't been seen since. Now it sounds like we're really doing an automotive. <laughs> it's just the weirdest <laughs> shit ever. That is crazy. And then Wertherick, who felt guilty after the who felt guilty after the wreck for some reason, that's an even crazier story. He he went absolutely mad. He tried to commit suicide twice, and then after those two times, he he ended up uh, trying to kill his wife. He stabbed her fourteen times. Tried to kill his wife, and then eventually, um, you know got out of jail and everything. And he died in a drunk driving accident in 81. That's insane. It's creepy. That is very odd. It's very, I think the moral of the story is don't buy a spider. Don't buy a Porsche 550 spider or any parts, especially don't buy any parts from an old 19. (laughs) Don't buy anything from a 550 spider. Don't even if it's a good deal. Because if it was something his, then you gone. You go. <laughs> Something bad's gonna happen. That's <laughs> gonna happen. Yeah, I don't care if it's just, if it's a paperweight or a desk toy. Just don't have it. Um, I believe in strange occurrences with things, and this is definitely it's, indicating it's weird. that something. Now, something. See, I'm not there. a believer in that. Truly, I, I mean, I believe that there's a perfectly explan- explainable reason for yes. everything. I mean, <laughs> and there's things that we don't understand. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to sit here and talk about spirituality and things like that. But, but it's weird. This Porsche had. So Something. It's weird. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right, so let's move ahead. October 1st, 1964, the 1965 Ford Mustangs were in- officially introduced, and this included their new 2 plus 2 Fastback Coupe. The Fastback. When the when the Mustang could finally be made a performance car. Okay. Yeah, I'll before give it, it was some credit, then. paltry little, weak, flimsy convertible made out of with a the, Falcon. With the Mustang thing yeah. on it. Yeah, that's, you know. I'm Mustangs. They don't. They don't get me too excited. Nah, not very much. So sorry, guys. I mean, they're cool. They're uh, well, cool. Uh, the new. Uh, a- well, okay. I actually am wrong because I didn't mean what I just said. <laughs> I do like Mustangs. I'm very selective with what with what Mustangs I like. I do like Mustangs as a whole. I think they're a cool car. I love all sports cars. I have a special affinity for Fox bodies, especially yes. when they're teal. Really? And I, oh yeah, my favorite color of that Fox body. Okay. And I, I prefer the notchback with the trunk. I don't like the hatchback. Yeah, no. Um, and I love the SVT Cobra R. I mm-hmm. love the Shelby GT350R and the new GT500. I like the five liters. I, I like five Mustangs. liters. I love the five liter sound. Yeah, they do sound so good. I All do. Right, well, we'll, yeah. move, we'll move off before I start to, you know, denigrate and start talking bad about them again. So October 2nd, 1966, the American Grand Prix was won by one of my favorite drivers, Jim Clark in a Lotus 43. Yeah. Now the cool part about this, I know not a lot of people really care about old Grand Prix racing, but I do. And this was powered by BRM's special H16, which was the only 16 cylinder car ever to win a Grand Prix. It proved not to be exceptionally effective because it was a little bit heavier and didn't produce much power. But behind (laughs) the wheel was Mr. Jim Clark, who was quite possibly one of the fastest men ever to drive a car. Absolutely incredible. Um, And really, he may have been the only driver of of that era to be able to win with that car. So that just sounds like a. A crazy feat to try to do. Like that's just almost too much. A sixteen cylinder. Yeah. Imagine a tune up. Just imagine the weight 
associated with it, you know? Like, what kind of engine bay would that fit in? Well, it's an F1 car, so it, there's not really a bay. They just, okay. like, set but the then, engine down on the take frame. It and <laughs> and it's there. <laughs> Build yeah. the body around it. Exactly. <laughs> oh, okay. Never mind. I take it back. <laughs> That's okay. No worries. Well, I think that about wraps it up for this week in automotive history. Of course, we'll be back with another next week. You guys can catch it. And we love you. Yeah. Love talking about history. Bye.